Welcome back to Horror Science, a new podcast that explores the true facts behind your favorite scary movies. I'm your host, Olivia Eiler. Today in our second episode, we're going to be talking about The Babadook, directed by Jennifer Kent. It was distributed in the United States by IFC Films in 2014. The Babadook is an Australian horror film that follows Amelia, a widowed mother who's raising her six-year-old son, Samuel. Her husband's death occurred as a result of a car crash on the way to deliver Samuel. And as the film progresses, you see the pair struggle with a monster who seems to appear out of a children's book, The Babadook. But a deeper look at the film reveals that the pair might be facing an internal demon, one resulting from grief and repression. In this episode, we'll try to answer three main questions. So first off, we're going to look at the mental conditions that can arise in any woman following the birth of a child. Throughout the film, Amelia struggles to accept and love her son. We'll examine the possible explanations of postpartum depression and the more serious postpartum psychosis. Then we'll examine the compounding effect the death of Amelia's husband had upon her health. In this segment, we'll talk about typical responses to feelings of grief, as well as how stress can manifest itself physically. And finally, we'll look at psychoanalysis and see what Freud would have to say about Amelia and the Babadook. Obviously, the death of her husband was a major contributing factor to Amelia's mental decline. But before we jump into the normal response of grief, I'd like to explain two medical conditions that have the potential to affect any woman following childbirth. While it may be hard to imagine a mother resenting her child, these issues occur more frequently than would be expected. The most common of the two that will be covered in this segment is referred to as postpartum depression. The information I've included on this illness comes from the Mayo Clinic and the Illinois Department of Public Health. Links to both of these sources, along with all the others that I'll reference throughout this episode, can be found on the landing page for this episode at horrorscience.x10host.com. So throughout the Babadook, we see Emilio struggling with her daily activities, including getting to work, cleaning the house, eating properly, and caring for her son. Although this film takes place nearly seven years after Samuel's birth, there are strong connections between Amelia's behavior and postpartum depression. Many women who have had children can relate to something called the baby blues. According to the Illinois Department of Public Health, approximately 50% of new mothers experience this condition. Its symptoms, which include intense sadness and sudden mood swings, usually begin immediately after the birth of a child and will disappear on their own within a few hours or one to two weeks. Postpartum depression may be mistaken for baby blues at first, but its symptoms are longer lasting and more severe. These symptoms, as listed by the Mayo Clinic, include depressed mood, difficulty bonding with a child, isolation, changes in appetite and sleeping patterns, extreme fatigue, feelings of worthlessness, irritability, and anger. While the baby blues may be emotionally challenging, Postpartum depression interferes with daily activities for an extended period of time. The symptoms of this illness will usually present themselves within the first few weeks after birth, but may be dormant for up to six months. Postpartum depression develops out of a combination of factors that are both physical and psychological. Physically, giving birth leads to a drop in estrogen and progesterone, which can lead to a hormonal drop in mood. It's also possible that the thyroid gland may reduce hormone production, which results in a decrease in energy and subsequent feelings of depression. Emotional factors also contribute to the development of postpartum depression. The Mayo Clinic lists a history of depression, bipolar disorder, conflicts with the child's father, financial problems, and unwanted pregnancy as risk factors. 
So just how common is this? Data from the Illinois Department of Public Health states that anywhere from 10 to 20% of mothers experience postpartum depression. Unfortunately, it's really difficult to gather actual data on the frequency of this illness, as a lot of mothers may feel ashamed and avoid seeking help for this condition. However, it is really crucial to the health of the mother and those around her that she receives help. Although home remedies like exercise and relaxing may lessen the symptoms, only a doctor can truly resolve the illness. Treatment for postpartum depression is very similar to normal depression. Treatment will usually include psychotherapy and education about stress management, and may also include certain antidepressants that pose little risk while breastfeeding. If left untreated, postpartum depression can evolve into chronic depression. Postpartum depression also poses risk for the child. This quote from the Mayo Clinic describes the effect that the mother's illness can have upon her child. It reads, Children of mothers who have untreated postpartum depression are more likely to have emotional and behavioral problems, such as sleeping and eating difficulties, excessive crying, and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Delays in language development are more common as well. This chain of cause and effect can be seen in the Babadook. Samuel is kind of a handful for his mom. Uh, He brings weapons to school, screams for his mother's attention, He stays up all night and loses sleep over an obsession with this monster from a book, um, and he pushes little girls out of treehouses. Although the film begins right before his seventh birthday, it's not that hard for viewers to imagine these behaviors developing out of the conditions created by his mother's untreated postpartum depression. So if postpartum depression doesn't seem challenging enough, there's another more severe illness that can affect new mothers. And although the Babadook is fictional, and I'm not a doctor, I would be willing to guess that Amelia is affected by postpartum psychosis. Fortunately, in real life, this illness is far less common than postpartum depression. It affects only one to two mothers out of every 1,000, according to data from a study published by doctors Dorothy Sitt, Anthony J. Rothschild, and Catherine L. Wisner in the Journal of Women's Health in 2011. This psychosis develops rapidly in new mothers within one to four weeks of birth. Symptoms include confusion, disorientation, obsessive thoughts about the child, hallucinations, difficulty sleeping, paranoia, and attempts to harm oneself or the child. Most often, postpartum psychosis coincides with episodes of bipolar disorder. According to the study, 72-88% to of mothers who experience postpartum psychosis have bipolar illness or schizoaffective disorder. Approximately 12% have schizophrenia. However, other risk factors do exist for those illness, and those include hormone shifts after birth, difficulties during the birth, sleep deprivation, and external environmental stressors. The study in the Journal of Women's Health highlights the importance of diagnosing and treating postpartum psychosis with a few statistics. The study reads, In the first year after childbirth, suicide risk increases 70-fold and suicide is the leading cause of maternal death up to one year after delivery. Of 1,000 women with postpartum psychosis, two complete suicide. Clearly, leaving this issue untreated poses an extreme risk to the mother's health and life. However, this study makes it clear that, although women affected by this illness may exhibit obsessive thoughts about their child, homicidal behavior rarely accompanies postpartum psychosis. Although 35% of women hospitalized for postpartum psychosis described illusions about their infants, only 9% had thoughts of harming their child. Most often, the child is harmed as a result of neglect. 
Still, any risk to someone's life is too high, so early diagnosis is crucial. In fact, those who believe they may be at risk for developing psychosis are encouraged to share their concerns with their doctor before the birth to ensure close monitoring of the situation. Diagnosis of postpartum psychosis involves a discussion of the mother's medical history, a physical exam, and laboratory tests. Once diagnosed, mothers affected by postpartum psychosis may be referred to a psychiatrist or hospitalized. Treatment typically involves mother and family education, medication, support therapy, and continual assessment of the mother's health, safety, and progress. In some cases, electroconvulsive therapy may be utilized. So, one interpretation of the Babadook views the monster as present only in Amelia's head. If this version of the film is correct, then Amelia experiences extreme auditory and visual hallucinations and transfers these beliefs to her imaginative and easily influenced son. Several scenes of the film show Amelia suffering from insomnia and distancing herself from others. The extreme degree of symptoms shown by Amelia, which include her isolation from her sister and difficulty working and maintaining her home, contribute to this likelihood of postpartum psychosis. Postpartum psychosis is a huge topic that I could spend an entire episode on, but I wanted to be able to examine other topics presented by the Babadook. The study I used as a source for this segment contained a lot more interesting information that I didn't include for the sake of time, but the link to this study will be available on the landing page for this episode. If you're interested in diving in a little deeper to postpartum psychosis, that link's a good place to start. There's also a recent real-life example of this situation involving a woman named Andrea Yates. Once again, I want to focus on the Babadook, but if there's enough interest surrounding that, I may do an episode later on comparing Yates to Amelia. But if you can't wait for that, a quick Google search will bring up a lot of interesting articles about her life and the impact that postpartum psychosis had upon her. So on top of this potential postpartum psychosis, Amelia is also impacted by the death of her husband. As the film explains, he died in a car crash while driving Amelia to the hospital to deliver their son. So while exploring Amelia and her Babadook, it's important to understand how grief is normally processed in issues that can arise from complicated grief. The information from this segment comes from Colin Murray Parks, a consultant psychiatrist, in his article, Bereavement in Adult Life. According to Parks, grief responses are impacted by three factors. The first is the desire to look back and regain the person who has been lost. The second is the desire to move on, move forward with your life. And the third and final factor are the cultural frameworks that influence how the person grieving believes they should express themselves. Parks claims that following a loss, individuals must go through a psychosocial transition. He describes this process the following way. Until people have gone through the painful process of searching, they cannot let go of their attachment to the lost person and move on to review and revise their basic assumptions about the world. At the beginning of this article, Parks lists and describes the four stages involved in the normal course of grief. These are numbness, pining, disorganization and despair, and reorganization. Immediately following a death, most individuals become numb for a few hours or days. Following this, people usually experience the stage of pining, which involves pangs of grief, intense longing, and anxiety. During this stage, which might last for a couple of months, individuals typically lose their appetites, lose weight, become depressed, and experience more difficulty with concentration and memory. 
Next, a person may transition into the stage of disorganization and despair. This stage involves persistent memories about events leading up to the death of the loved one and possible hallucinations. Parks claims that nearly half of all widows experience visual or auditory hallucinations of their deceased partner. This could be a possible explanation for Amelia's confrontation with her husband towards the end of the film. In his article, Parks stresses that these stages aren't a chronological progression. Individuals often alternate between the stages of pining and despair before finally reaching that stage of reorganization, which usually begins sometime during the second year following the loss. However, there are certain risk factors that can lead to complicated grief, which is where individuals are unable to reach that reorganization stage. Factors experienced by Amelia include the death of a spouse and an unexpected, untimely death. Other factors that can complicate grief include multiple deaths, homicide, and murder. Complicated bereavement, like that experienced by Amelia, can lead to physical and psychiatric issues, including impairment of the immune system, increased activity in the adrenal glands, sleep disorders, and depression. In describing the psychological implications of complicated bereavement, Park states, People who cope with bereavement by repressing the expression of grief are more liable to sleep disorders, depression, and hypochondrial symptoms, resembling the symptoms of the illness that caused the bereavement. This is referred to as identification symptoms. Not all psychogenic symptoms, however, are a consequence of repressed or avoided grief. Some reflect the loss of security, which often follows a major loss and causes people to misinterpret as sinister the normal symptoms of anxiety and tension. This quote highlights that in addition to postpartum illness and grief over her lost husband, Emilio might also be experiencing additional stress resulting from her new financial status. Several scenes throughout the film show Amelia struggling at work, sitting in a bare home, and fixing meals on a budget. All three of these factors compound to create an enormous amount of stress in Amelia's life. And all this stress is undoubtedly taxing on her mental health, but it might also be impacting her physical wellness. Extreme stress can have harmful effects on the body, such as heart disease, gastrointestinal issues, and accelerated aging. In fact, one of the key components of my interpretation of the Babadook involves a physical symptom exhibited by Amelia. Throughout the film, she increasingly shifts her jaw and touches the tooth on the side of her mouth, either using her fingers or her tongue. It seems like she's always messing with her jaw. In fact, near the climax of the film, she uses her own hands to pull out the tooth that has been causing her pain throughout the film. During my initial viewing of the film, I saw the inclusion of these behaviors as a hint that the conflict existed inside the minds of Amelia and Samuel. Instead of seeing The Babadook as a monster film, I saw it as a psychological thriller about the impact of grief. Regardless of your interpretation of the film, it is true that stress manifests itself physically. A 2007 article from How Stuff Works titled Stress-Related Dental Problems describes how stress can contribute to jaw and tooth pain. The article details two disorders, temporomandibular joint syndrome, referred to as TMJ, and myofascial pain dysfunction, which is referred to as MPD. Both disorders can result from stress and lead to pain in the joints and ligaments of the jaw. Symptoms include popping of the jaw, inability to open one's mouth fully, and tension in the cheeks and jaw. Surprisingly, both disorders appear most often in women in their 20s and 30s. And thankfully, you don't have to pull out your teeth like Amelia to resolve these issues. 
Treatments include relaxation exercises, massages, mouth guards, and avoidance of crunchy foods. So as we close out our scientific analysis of the Babadook, what would Sigmund Freud have to say about all of this? In his writing, Morning and Melancholia, Freud compares the morning of a loss with melancholia, what we would call today depression. Freud views the two as distinct possibilities following a loss. He describes mourning as an accepted normal process and melancholia as some sort of disturbance. I'm going to read kind of a long quote from his writing, uh, but I feel like it's the best way to get this distinction across. So Freud writes, Mourning is regularly the reaction to the loss of a loved person. In some people, the same influences produce melancholia instead of mourning, and we consequently suspect them of a pathological disposition. It is also well worth notice that, although mourning involves grave departures from the normal attitude to life, it never occurs to us to regard it as a pathological condition and to refer it to medical treatment. We rely on its being overcome after a certain lapse of time, and we look upon any interference with it as useless or even harmful. The distinguishing mental features of melancholia are a profoundly painful dejection, cessation of interest in the outside world, loss of capacity to love, inhibition of all activity, and the lowering of the self-regarding feelings to agree that finds utterance in self-reproaches and self-revelings and culminates in a delusional expectation of punishment. So it's clear from this quote that Freud would categorize Amelia's experience as melancholia. The effects of her grief have extended over a period of seven years, and she seems unable to express love to her son or her other family members. So in this writing, Freud goes on to describe how people experiencing melancholia can manage to feel self-hatred and self-reproach. He claims that when people lose the object of their love, in this case Amelia's husband, an internal conflict is created with the libido. On one hand, the individual still feels the previous desire to maintain a relationship with that person, but on the other, the person has lost their ability to express that affection. So at this point, Freud believes that two options exist for the individual. They can either choose to replace the object of their love, which is the case in mourning, or they can internalize that previous object, which is the result of melancholia. For a portion of this film, it seemed like Amelia was beginning to form a relationship with her co-worker at the nursing home, but she eventually shut herself off emotionally. And it's at this point that Freud would claim that Amelia would have internalized her feelings towards the loss of her husband. Amelia's ego would have split, forming an ego ideal and the ordinary ego. The ordinary ego contains her feelings towards her loss, and the division of her ego allows her to criticize and hate parts of her own being. So this final quote that I'll read from Freud's writing describes this process and what might have happened had Samuel not been around to save his mother. Freud writes, The object or person becomes interjected in part and parcel of the ego. Thus, the ego ideal can become sadistic toward the ego as an outsider, and the ego is treated like an external object or person of hatred and disgust, which can eventually lead to suicide. So now you can have a better understanding of some of the possible mental implications of childbirth, as well as the physical and psychological implications of stress. Um, and although Freud's psychoanalysis doesn't hold up much today with modern psychology, um, it's still something that's interesting to look at. So if you're interested in finding the links to any of the sources that were used throughout this episode, those can be found on the landing page for this episode. 
on the website, which is horrorscience.x10host.com. Um, if you're listening on iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review for us. If you've got any comments or suggestions for future episodes, you can send an email to horrorsciencepodcast at gmail.com or send a tweet out to at horrorsciencepo. Um, and you can look forward to a new episode next week. Thanks for listening.